You're listening to the Metro LA Podcast, an official podcast of the LA International Church of Christ. Good morning. We are at the final class of the book of Hebrews. So if you've been listening to all these, I want to tell you congratulations. Uh, it is a great achievement to go through an entire book in the Bible and go chapter by chapter by chapter. The truth is we oftentimes don't get those opportunities and, uh, to be able to take that kind of time, you know, and, and, and yet the, the, the incredible thing is that we could even take, break it down slow. We could literally go line by line, but that would probably be a six month course, not a, not a, a 16 week class. Um, but here we are at the very end of it and I'm super excited. Uh, we're, we're, we're wrapping it up and, you know, there's just so many great things, hopefully, that you've gotten out of this, and I certainly have. Every time I teach this, every time I go through it, of course, I I study it and restudy it, and I I generally will read a couple more commentaries just to see if there's anything else I'm missing or anything else I can add or uh, as before I teach each chapter. And every time I get so much out of it. So thank you for being with us and. um, we're going to jump right on in and this may be a little bit of a longer class. So, uh, just be prepared. We're going to take the time we need to finish it and finish it well. And, uh, who knows? Maybe it might be something you listen to first half and then the second half. I don't know, but, uh, we are in chapter 12 and, um, we stopped at verse 18 because here's a shift and, and, and in, in chapter 12, verse 18 through the end of the chapter, is really the summary. It's the grand finale. It's, it's, you know, whenever I prepare a sermon, I always think, okay, how am I going to end this? What am I going to say at the end? The two things that I think through almost word for word oftentimes is how am I going to start and how am I going to end? Um, and, and because obviously the ending is important. That's what people walk away with. Well, this is absolutely the climax, the crescendo, the, the wrap it up, um, of the book of Hebrews, of the sermon that, uh, Hebrews represents or the lesson that it represents, uh, and, and it does so in a great way, in a very inspiring way. And then chapter 13 are like final thoughts and then final hellos and goodbyes. And, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely the, the, the epilogue or the, the last scene after, you know, everything happened in the movie. And then you see those last few scenes that kind of wrap up everything. That's chapter 13, basically. So uh, let's go ahead and start with uh, chapter 12, verse 18. And I'm going to read it through because I think it needs to be read through. Then we'll go back and, and look at it. So in verse 18, he says, You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to the Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Ta-da! That's, that's the, that's the final, uh, words of admonition and encouragement of this powerful teaching in the book of Hebrews. And then he goes on to some very important things that, that we'll, we'll, we'll look at in a minute. But, but coming back to the beginning, um, it's, it's, you know, it's amazing how he, he wraps it up and he wraps it up. And we've been talking so much comparing the Old Testament, the New Testament, the new covenant with the old covenant, the, the, the Messiah with all the foreshadowings and, and that, you know, every, every step of the way exalting Jesus and showing the value, the importance, the, the glory of, of, of Jesus, as well as the humanity, the suffering, the humility of Jesus giving us such an incredible view, such a panorama, you know. I think it's like, it's kind of like, uh, um, when I think of, 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 uh, of the development of media, you know, how, how the, the newest TVs, when I walk into Costco and they have these huge TVs with, you know, 4K definition and everything. And I compare that to, the TV I grew up with, you know, that, mo- that anybody who's been around a while, you remember the little square TV with, you could, see, you could literally see the pixels, you know, and, and it was choppy. And, and, and actually the funny thing is back then we didn't know any better. We, I, we just were amazed that you could see somebody in this little box and you could see a story or a movie or something like that. And I remember when we bought a color TV and that was such an upgrade, such a step forward. And then, you know, little by little TVs got better and better and bigger and bigger and, and higher definition. And that's in a sense what he's pointing out, you know, that, that, that every step of the way that everything that has to do with Jesus is so much better. It's so much more detailed. It's so much more colorful. It's so much so much more helpful in every way possible. And then the last analogy is he talks about the mountain of God when he, when, when he, when Moses, uh, brought the 10 commandments versus the mountain of Jesus, which was prophesied through, throughout the prophecies of the coming of the kingdom of God and, and how that foreshadowing was pointing to this. And he, and he says, you've not come to a mountain that can, that can be touched. And that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm. Now he's absolutely recalling, of course, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Both of them are the chapters where you see the Ten Commandments. And, um, I don't, we're not going to read it all, but I do want to just read one excerpt. I'm in Deuteronomy 5. 
And it says in verse 23, this is at the end of giving the Ten Commandments. It says, then he wrote them on the two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. You know, and so they're describing what they saw, what they heard, the, the clouds and the thunder and the voices. Um, in verse 26, for what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have survived? Go near and listen to all the Lord the, your God says. And so the, he's describing, you know, everything they've seen, all the incredible things that they have experienced um, receiving the Ten Commandments. And of course, they were afraid um when they when uh when they received him in verse 18 of Exodus 20 it says when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke they trembled with fear they stayed at a distance and said to Moses speak to us yourself and we will listen but do not have God speak to us or we will die and Moses said to the people do not be afraid God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So, um, and it says all the people kept the distance. And so he's telling us this, the mountain of Jesus or the kingdom of God of Jesus is ushered in is so much better than the old one. It's not about fear and, and dread and death. It's about life. It's about, it's about something brand new. And he says, you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. They're not hearing thunder and lightning and, and all this. What are they hearing? Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Okay, so he tells us, you've come to something incredible, something amazing. And, and of course, he's going to give us one final exhortation because this is the book of exhortations. And that, that's probably another good way to, to title this is, is uh, the exhortations of God. Another way to translate exhortations is the encouragement of God. Um, and he says... He, he gives us that final exhortation. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? And he's used this argument several times about if, if they weren't allowed to disobey in their situation, how much more should we not disobey in our situation? And this time he talks about that we're receiving a voice from heaven. We are, we are receiving teaching from heaven, not just from earth. And, 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 uh, and how much more important is that? You know, if somebody disobeyed, uh, the teachings from earth that Moses brought down, how much more would they be punished if they disobeyed Jesus who came from heaven and has returned to heaven? And, and he says, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And of course, he's, he's quoting Haggai, the prophet. <clears throat> the words once more indicate removing of what can be shaken. That is created things so that what cannot be shaken will remain. 
you know, and, and, and ultimately, you know, this is, he's, he's, he's calling us to have an eternal perspective to understand what really counts, what will remain, what really lasts. This world, it will be shaken. It will come. It will go. It will, it will rise. It will fall. It will disappear. But the kingdom of God will not be shaken. The kingdom of God will last. And he says, and he closes it out. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, you know, there's a lot of things that, that, that can shake us. I mean, even right now, I mean, this, I'm, I'm teaching this and it's, um, actually, I don't know. I think it's just September 16th or 15th. Um, and our world is very much being shaken up. You know, we have a global pandemic. We're just a few weeks away from an election. We've had months of, of racial tensions that have come to the surface after decades of frustration and, and angst. And there's just so much happening in our world that is causing so many tension. Then on top of that, we've got all these disasters. I mean, the sun rises and it's orange and it's red and it sets and it just sets in a cloud of smoke every day right now. And, and not just in Los Angeles, it's all the way up the coast to Canada. And, and I spoke to somebody, I spoke to Darren Overstreet in Seattle and he was telling me they have the worst air in the world right now. And it's so thick with smoke. And I mean, all these things that we, you know, the, the, the economy is, is on wobbly knees right now. And people are afraid of what's going to happen and what's going to happen with the housing market and all these things that, that, um, are just being shooken up, being shaken right now. And, and what is the one thing you can count on is the kingdom of God. That does not get shaken. That does not change. And, and it stands out even more. And I believe that, that it's, it's, it's the gift that we have. It's the hope that we have that no matter what happens in this world, the economy crashes, the United States slips into a civil war of, 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 Guerrilla tactics and opposing political parties and, and ideologies and a cultural war and all this stuff happens. I mean, I'm just saying the worst that could happen, but the kingdom of God does not change. Jesus doesn't change. Our hope doesn't change. It's the one thing we can grab onto. And given the time that this was written and given the, the fact that, that the temple would be destroyed, that the Roman Empire would go after Christians, that, that many Christians would lose all their property. They would be, many would die in the arenas, the Roman arenas. I mean, their world was being shaken at a level that we don't even comprehend. I mean, we are living with angst and anxiety and depression and, and stress because of what's happening in our world. Imagine what they were going through. You know, that, that any, any moment somebody could come knocking on the door and, and take us away and take all our property and uh, take our kids away and all this. I mean, that this was the world they were in. And he says, the thing you can count on what is solid, what does not get shaken is the kingdom of God. And so let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence in awe. And I, I especially appreciate this, the fact that 
you know, th- this is something that the Jews grew up with. They grew up with this teaching, this teaching and understanding that God is awesome, that God is holy. He is to be loved, yes, but he's also to be feared. And it was what he taught them at Mount Sinai. And that's what all that noise and rumbling and thunder was all about, so that they would not sin, so that they would have a healthy fear of God, as well as they, they would grow in their love for God. And and I think that sometimes us in the, in the modern world, we lose that reverence, that awe. We, 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 we don't understand what is holy and what is sanctified. Um, and it's a lot of that because of our evangelical roots. Those of us who grew up Catholic or grew up Orthodox, we have a little taste of it. We have a little idea of it. You know, we'd go into church. I mean, I remember since I was a small child going into church and whispering and just feeling like, okay, we're in God's living room. You know, don't break anything. Don't touch anything. Don't, don't do anything wrong. And God forbid you sin in there. You know, you lie or, or you do something to somebody. You, you, you're going straight to hell, you know, and, 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 and we had that fear of God of, of, and, you know, those that I think some of the traditional denominations, Lutheran, Catholic, Church of England, Episcopalian, um, Orthodox, we, we, we had a little bit of that. The Jews have that so much more. You know, the, the, in their culture, a reverence for God. In fact, they won't, you know, the Orthodox Jews won't even write the word God. They write G slash D. Or they call him the name, the, 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 the name, Shem. And, or, or they, you know, despite the fact that there are thousands of references to Yahweh, they just say Adonai, which is the Lord. Um, out of reverence for God, out of respect for God. That's the idea of wearing the kippah on their heads, the yarmulke on their heads on the Sabbath is a sign of submission or the women covering their heads. That it's just a normal part of their life to live in reverence and respect to God. You know, we, we, the value that we have in, in the, the, with the evangelical culture that we have and even us in the International Church of Christ, we, we are greatly influenced by the evangelical culture is the, the, the positives, we look to God as our father and our friend, and we have that confidence that he talks about, uh, to, to, to draw near to God. The, what we lose sometimes is the reverence and the awe, the respect that God is God. When the angel of the Lord spoke to Joshua, he said, take off your shoes for the ground you are on is holy. And of course, Joshua did it. And we don't have that, you know, or when the, when the ox stumbled carrying the ark and the man reached out and touched it and he died on the spot, that kind of, whoa, you know, that kind of fear of the Lord to, to don't mess with God. We lose a little bit of that. And we just, we, in fact, sometimes we can really become arrogant with God and we turn even on him and judge God sometimes because we think we are, you know, ourselves so much and so great. So, you know, the, the, that final climax, he says, be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That is acceptable worship. For our God is a consuming fire. And what a picture that paints, you know, of, of God on the mountain with the fire and the whole thing. 
you know, but, but in, and not, not so much to scare us, but to inspire us and give us hope and to help us understand that God is great and he's on our side. And how much more should we be grateful? How much more should we revere him and be in awe of him and worship him because of that? So that wraps it up, the great God that we serve. And then, um, you know, and that's the end of chapter 12. And in chapter 13, he kind of goes, almost kind of pulls out a list, you know, of things that didn't get covered before. Here's some quickies that I just need to let you know. And I want you to think about this because you need to, you know, in our Christian life. And, and it's one of the things that, that, um, that is different between modern Western writing and Jewish literature is that it doesn't necessarily have to be, there's a number of rules that we follow in modern literature that they didn't, they just frankly don't worry about it. Does everything have to be chronological? Does everything have to follow a certain pattern? Not necessarily. You can be like a string of pearls, a wisdom, you know, just wise sayings, you know, that like the book of Proverbs, like um, Solomon's writings, David's writings, uh, even Lamentations has some of this, but, um, so we go, we, we jump in chapter 13 when he says, he says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Okay. So he wraps up the sermon, so to speak, you know, the big crescendo. And now let me tell you a few other things that you need to think about and have on your heart. And he says, the first one out is you've got to keep on loving each other like brothers and sisters, like a family. Phileo, the brotherly love, uh, from which we get the name of our city, Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. Um, that is so important that we do not withdraw and that we do not separate. Uh, even now, as, as, as we right here <clears throat> are going through a lot in our country, in our world, and, and with the pandemic that's isolated us, how important it is that we're calling each other, that we're connecting on Zoom, that we're, that we're, you know, writing letters to each other or whatever, emailing or, or, you know, on social media. That is our connection right now. And it's that important that we keep helping one another. You know, even now, um, this last few weeks, so many of us have gotten, um, have had family members very sick. As today, after I finish the sermons, I'm going to be heading up to be with Michelle. Her father is, is gravely ill right now. And, and, you know, we, we need each other so much. And I feel so much the support of so many brothers and sisters praying for my father-in-law. And we had the entire Rocky Mountain group of churches were sending me notes because we had to cancel a marriage workshop we were doing for them. And they're all been praying for my father-in-law. And it's just, we need that so much. We need to be there for each other, helping one another, loving each other, devoted to each other. And we cannot ever stop that. We cannot ever pull away from that because that is, as Jesus said, that is the thing that shows the world that we're different. That is the the biggest thing that shows the world that we're not like everybody else. We're not just one religion among many. We are the religion. Jesus isn't just a, a religious leader among many. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it says, he says, so keep on loving one another's brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, 
For by doing so, for by, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. I love this little, just, this little thing he just throws in there. You know, he says, keep showing hospitality. I mean, it, it, the, the, the early church was known to have created a social network, basically. Um, they were the first, really the first social security, the first social programs was the early church. The Roman empire built this huge empire and caused the world to shift from a, a completely agrarian, uh, uh, farming culture to metropolises, which the world had not seen metropolises yet. Like, not like what was happening now during the time of the Roman empire. I mean, there were cities, but, but all of a sudden city life became the life that so many were living. And, and of course in cities, you have large problems, everything from homelessness to orphans, to, to hunger, to education, to, you know, elderly needs, all that kind of stuff is suddenly becomes huge when you have a million people living together versus an agrarian society where everybody's scattered and little villages, everybody knows everybody, everybody can handle somebody gets sick, you help them. It totally changes everything. And the early church became the social system of many of the major cities. And so hospitality was huge and particularly among the Christians helping each other. So persecution broke out in Ephesus, then they would all flee, you know, or let's say in Rome, because it did happen in Rome and they all fled to Corinth or Ephesus or uh, uh, Ephesus, sorry, uh, or to Alexandria or to Jerusalem. Or when there was a hunger in Jerusalem, uh, uh, a, not a hunger, a, um, uh, uh, a drought and all the problems that Jerusalem went through, all the churches sent collections to help the brothers and sisters. So this network of taking care of each other and just plain old hospitality that where you, you bring people into your home and you feed them and you take care of them. This was very quickly developed among the early church. It was established. You can see it in Acts 2, 3, and 4 and the descriptions of the early church and how they took care of each other. They shared everything. They had everything in common and there was no needy among them. And that principle spread with the growth of the church. And then it says, continue to remember those in prison. Oh, oh, before that, he, throw, he drops that little line of, of uh, you have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. I love that because it gives us a little cue, uh, a little clue of even some some bizarre things that happen in this world. I mean, one of the things I love to do with, with a group of friends hanging out is ask if anybody's got angel stories. And if you it, 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 do that sometime with a group of friends, half the group will have a story that, could possibly have been an angel. I, I have several of them that, that things that happened to me that were just clearly, you know, to me at least, I think there was an angel involved. Now, I can't say I'm a hundred percent sure. One time I was, uh, in, 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 when I was part of the New York City Church of Christ and, and we had, we used to have our meetings in a place called, it was a building in Harlem. We called it the Harlem space. And we would meet there. And I don't remember what, even what was happening, but I was very discouraged. 
and something was happening in my life that I was very down and, and, and upset. And I was considering getting out of the ministry. I was considering quitting and doing something else. And I remember we took a break. I walked a few blocks over and around the corner to a little bodega, you know, a little store on the corner. And as there are many in New York and, and I went in, I remember when I was walking in, uh, there was a homeless man, pretty raggedy, you know, you know, classic homeless man. Um, and he asked me for finding money out of quarter. I gave my quarter and, and I walked in, I got something to drink and I was walking out and I just had a lot on my mind. I was thinking, you know, all these things about my future and I'll never forget. He stopped me and he said, don't give up. Do not quit. Keep doing what's right. And I was kind of in shock. I was just like, he read my mind or something. And I just, I looked at him and I just kept walking and I walked about 10 feet and then it hit me, you know, how does this guy know anything of what's going on with me? And I turned around and he was gone. I walked back to the corner to look down the street and he was gone. I don't know where he was. I don't know what happened to him, you know, and okay. Now, was that an angel? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. You know, I tend to think he was, you know, and, and I've got several more like that, that don't have time to tell you, but ask around. And I love this. This is just like, God has his little tricks to, to, I think they're, they're, they're like, um, they're like morsels to just boost our faith. You know, most of us have stories like that where something happened that it was just, Really made you stop and think, okay, was that God? Was that an angel? Was that, what, what was that? You know, and I've got several and I think partly because God knew that I would be doing all, you know, going in the ministry and planning churches and, and helping churches that he knew I needed some morsels to boost up my faith. So then he, then he changes gears again. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. You know, the, the, um, there were different times and in different parts of the empire where Christians were rounded up and thrown in prison because they were Christians or because they wouldn't make uh, a sacrifice to Caesar or, you know, or because they were accused of things that were, were not necessarily true. Things like, that they're incestuous because they marry their sisters, you know, um, or that they're, they're cannibals because they drink the blood of their leader and eat his flesh, you know, things that were blown up and twisted that had truth in it, but obviously not in the morbid macabre way that they were accused of. But probably the biggest thing is the Roman Empire was somewhat paranoid. I mean, they didn't want any troublemakers. They wouldn't tolerate any kind of troublemaking. I mean, the largest empire in the world, they were scattered all the way from, from, you know, from, from basically from near India, from Afghanistan to, to Britain and all of Northern Africa. And, and the, you know, they were always fighting with the, with the car, with Carthage and, and took over that area. So it was a huge empire to manage. They just were not going to tolerate anybody who would cause any problems. And, um, again, the Jewish religion and culture had been accepted or I wouldn't, not, not that they embraced it by any means, but it was what part of normal religion. Whereas this new group, they quickly figured out were not Jews at the, at the beginning, the Christians were considered Jews, but 
as it became clear and clear, and especially as the Jews rejected the Christians, they were, they made it very clear that that group is not with us, you know, and we, we, we get that. We've been through that too. Um, and then he says, uh, oh, so, so he tells us, you know, make sure that you're visiting those brothers and sisters. Don't forget about them. They're, they've been locked up for their faith. They've lost everything. We need to make sure that we're taking care of them. And I think that's a, that's, that is an important spirit that we never lose. That when, when one of us suffers, we all suffer. Paul would explain that in his writings in 1 Corinthians 12 about the body, that when one part suffers, every part suffers, right? Verse four, he says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Do you understand how, you see how this is like a string of pearls? They're not necessarily connected. So we go from, we go from family love to hospitality to prison. And now we're talking about marriage, you know, and, and, and also something that you can always ask is, it's a good question to ask is why is he saying this? What was happening in the world that this, that this was important to say? Why is the author reminding us of this? And, you know, some would speculate that, that this, that their word, this was, uh, a time where these early ascetics are, are promoting, uh, the, the single life, uh, celibacy and painting a picture that being married is like for the weaker Christians and that the stronger Christian, the people of faith, of greater faith could remain celibate as it was indicated that, that it would be better to be celibate. So anyways, um, he makes the point that marriage needs to be honored. It's, it's something holy. It's of God, right? He says the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral, which also kind of points to the fact that maybe some were even beginning that were married thought they should just live as though they weren't married. And keep in mind that immorality was huge back then. I mean, there were temples, there were temple prostitutes in the temples. Uh, immorality was a very common, common thing. So it, it was a radical teaching and we're returning to that. I mean, for, for a teenager to be pure is radical in high school or even more so in college. You know, that, that for anybody to guard their purity is becoming more and more countercultural. So we're, we're going right back to this. And, uh, he says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Okay. Now another, another pearl here. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So, um, you know, so he reminds us again, don't put your hope in money. And, and of course, what's the backdrop here? People are losing everything because they're Christians. And, and our hope is not in what we have. Then verse seven, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Very powerful teaching. Next pearl is think about the people who preach the gospel to you. Think about the outcome of their lives. You know, I, you know, every, one of the things I, I love to give my testimony. I don't like sharing my testimony, but I do like it when I've shared it because it always inspires and encourages people. One, to know how far I've come and how much I've changed as a Christian, but also so that they understand that God takes care of you over the years. 
I'm, you know, Michelle has now been a Christian 40 years. I'm at 38 years and I freely offer myself as an example of what happens when you devote your life to God. You know, I mean, there's things that were hard that I've been through. We, you know, we've, we traveled all over the world planting churches and, and sometimes we almost died because of diseases and mosquitoes and stuff that were in places that we didn't grow up. That wasn't our people, so to speak. We went there as missionaries. We put our lives on the line. I've had guns aimed at my face. I've been robbed. I've been, I mean, all kinds of things have happened to us. But on the other hand, we've been incredibly blessed. You know, I've learned how to be a good dad, how to be a good father, how to be a brother. And and I figured out that the, my goals, which I received from Jesus, are to be a good uh, disciple of Jesus, to be a good husband to Michelle, to be a good father to my children, and to be a good brother to the church. And if I accomplish that, I've done well. And so I'm doing well. God, life's good. Not that it's easy. And not that, I mean, I've... Several, you know, some of our moves left us literally bankrupt. I mean, we, we, it cost us everything to move from this place to this place. And every five or six years, Michelle and I have had to start over. What I'm saying is we've had our challenges and we've had difficulties, some because of life and some because we're Christians. And yet God has blessed us. And I have, I absolutely would say I have life, life to the full. I, I, I love my life. I wouldn't trade with anybody. And, and that's the life that Jesus gave me. And that's the life that I would, I wish for, I hope for my kids. I hope for all my friends to be able to have the relationship with God that I have, to be able to have the hope that I have, the confidence that I have. And, you know, I, I, I've had to deal with death a lot. And I know that the day will come where I will face my own death. And I feel ready. I feel like I don't want it to happen right now, but I feel like when it comes, it comes. I do ask God to take me out about, about five minutes before I die. So I can be like Enoch and just go. But, but I have a hope and a confidence that very few people have in this world because of my life, because of what God has done for me. So he's telling us, remember the leaders, think about their lives and the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And, and, and I'm pretty sure he's talking about the apostles. Uh, in their lives and keep in mind that of the 12, 11 of them were murdered, were killed, right? And only, only one lived to be a ripe old age, John. And even he was thrown in a pot of boiling oil and they tried to roast him and kill him and he survived. Um, it's not like they didn't go through their hardships. They absolutely did. But when you think of their lives or, or, and he could also be talking about the people they trained and sent out people like Priscilla and Aquila, like Timothy, like Barnabas, like, uh, like Apollos and, uh, uh, like, you know, m- many other people like Phoebe in Romans 16. And, and there, he, he, he could point at their lives and say, look at their lives. And, and you have all these other religions and philosophies and their lives are a mess. Their marriages are horrible. Their families, are, are totally ripped up and, and, and because they're not following the way, the truth and the life. Jesus' teachings, Jesus' religion stands up towering over all others. Not to say that all others are worthless. Some have value. Truth is truth. Whether you find it from Buddha or from Confucius or from Jesus, truth is truth. 
and truth will help you. But the only one who has all of it is Jesus. And he's not just the truth. He's also the way and he's also the life. So he says, remember those leaders, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it does, it's not like Jesus' teachings only worked for the period of time in Jerusalem. I mean, here we're talking now 30, 40 years later. Does it still work? Yes. We're now 2,000 years later. Does it still work? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the most incredible life, and we need to be faithful to it and stick to it because it's worth it. It is right in every way. And then in verse 9, makes another shift. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. And I think this is probably what prompted the, first, the earlier statement, the previous statement of, of uh, remembering your leaders and being faithful to Jesus. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which we, which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And I can only imagine that, that some people were trying to promote Judaism again and go back to Passover meal and go back to the, to the Sabbath observation and, and pull people back to the ceremonial meals and the ceremonial observances. And, and there's something about ceremonies that give us a sense of security. There's something about denying ourselves. You know, I grew up observing Lent and I felt like a good Christian when I didn't eat meat on Fridays and I ate fish on Fridays. There's something about those little, those traditions, those rules that, that give us something like a handle that they give us to grab onto and feel like, okay, I feel good about myself. And what he was trying to show him was that, look, it's not those things. It's Jesus. Basically it's Jesus. He says, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. In other words, even those who are the high priests and those of the tribe of Levi, they don't have the right to take communion because they are not right with Jesus. And don't forget that you have a special blessing. He says, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For he, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. You know, and he said, look, and obviously, you know, if you, if you think about the tension between the Jews and the Christians, you know, he's reminding us that look, even the sacrifices that that the priests made, they were burned outside of the city. It's an interesting way to segue to Jesus. Jesus died out in shame outside the city, and we should be sitting outside the city, or or in if you go back to the tabernacle, which is what he references, it would be outside the camp, right? Um, bearing the disgrace he bore. So in other words, we should be honored to be outside the camp as Jesus was outside the camp as the sacrifice was outside the camp. For for here, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We don't need to worry about, you know, am I accepted here and now? What we need to be much more concerned about or where we need to have our focus is in the city to come, the new Jerusalem that God will bring down on the day of judgment. So that's what our hope is in. 
It's not in, do people in LA like me? Do people in my city accept me and like me? Or the early church, the church, the Christian, the Jewish Christians, do the people of Jerusalem accept me? Or in Ephesus, do they accept me here? Or in Alexandria, wherever these Jews may have been, that they don't need to worry about being accepted by the crowds or by society. Jesus wasn't accepted by society. He died in shame and scorn, and he rose from the dead. And guess what? We're going to do the same thing. We've got to be willing to die in shame and scorn, and we will be raised from the dead to accept the new city, the new heavenly Jerusalem. And he says, though Jesus, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. You know, we need to be talking about Jesus, saying his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifice, God is pleased. Let's keep outward focus. Let's keep serving. Let's keep giving and praising Jesus, having his name on our lips, and God will be praised, and God will be pleased by our good deeds. He says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit for you. You know, he tells us, and this is probably one of the more controversial statements in, in, in the book of Hebrews, frankly speaking, is he tells us to be confident in our leaders, uh, to submit to their leadership, some of the older translations say. And, and, you know, the word, the exact word in the Greek is debatable of the exact meaning, but this is the general idea, is that trust in them, be confident in them, uh, be supportive of them, and submit to their authority. What authority? Well, the authority that they have as God's chosen leaders of his church, you know, and, and this is not necessarily apostles. This could be people that were wrote, that rose up and God clearly opened the door for them to become le- the leadership, the deacons, the elders, the prophets, teachers. Ephesians four gives us the model. It was him who gave some to be, to be, uh, you know, uh, elders and evangelists and prophets and, uh, these are the servants that God has chosen to build up the body. And he says, he says, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no benefit for you. You know, it's a very positive command. It's a very, you know, hey, just be supportive, be in there. Of course, the question always in the back of people's minds, what if it's a bad leader? What if it's a, a leader that's not a very good leader? And I think the thing that's important to remember is that God is always watching. And God deals with everybody. I've been around long enough in our church, 38 years, to see some pretty bad leadership rise up and lead. And and I've seen the damage that bad leadership can do. And a lot of you have too. You've been around a while. You've seen it. You know what a, what bad leadership is like and looks like. And and the question is, you know, has always been, well, should we rebel? Should we rise up against leadership? And that's where faith has to come in and let God deal with it. God will judge leaders. The Bible says he will judge them more harshly than others. They're held to a higher standard. So because a leader, everything a leader does impacts everybody. Um, I'll never forget, I, I believe it was Ants, the cartoon Ants, or it might have been a Bug's Life. But um, the, there was a little princess ant, she was in charge, and and the, and the grasshopper comes and the, he's the bad guy and, and you know, something went wrong. I don't remember what, but he says, he's talking to her and she says, I'm sorry, that was my fault. I'm the leader. 
And he says, yeah, that's right. You're the leader. Everything's your fault. And unfortunately, that's somewhat true with leadership. And, and before we pick up stones and cast stones at the leaders, when, when we feel like they're not doing what's right, we have to remember that God is watching and God will deal with them. Nobody gets away with anything. Remember, God is not unjust, right? He watches, he sees, and he deals with things. I'll be honest with you. Oftentimes it takes way longer than I wish it would take. <laughs> I wish it would be a lot quicker. Um, but I also think God is merciful and he gives leaders time to repent. And sometimes they don't. And when they don't, he takes them out. I've seen them rise and I've seen them taken out. And you have too, if you've been around very long. And it's unfortunate when they rise and they're not good leaders, especially if they're abusive leaders, because they can do a lot of damage, damage that God will hold them accountable for and that God will heal if people turn to him and get help from him. This is a controversial one. This is a tough one, I know, but that's the general idea here is, is that we can trust leadership not because we trust people, but because we trust God and we can be supportive because we trust God, that God will take out bad leaders. It may take longer than we want. In fact, I would even say it almost always does, but he will take them out and truth always comes out. Nothing will remain hidden, right? Everything will be brought into the light of day. And God makes that happen. So I know that part of it sometimes when we feel we see somebody doing bad in leadership, the first instinct is to rebel. Well, I'm taking my group and leaving, you know, or I'm taking my Bible talk and going or whatever, you know, but that is sinful. That is not, I mean, name me a rebellion in the Bible that God was supportive. You know, it just, it's not good. I mean, even David, when, when, when he was anointed to be the king. In other words, he really wasn't in rebellion because God chose him to be the king, but he was still very respectful. Remember when he cut off the corner of Saul's robe and then he apologized for that because he knew that he was challenging a leader in a way that, that just wasn't respectful. So he tried to be respectful at all times, even though it was clear that Saul had gone bad. And what happened to Saul? Well, God took him out, you know, and he always does. So he says, in fact, if anything, try to make, be a joy to your leader. And I've always, you know, all of us are under leadership, right? All of us have, in, in some way or another, we're under somebody. Nobody's the top, only Jesus. And, and, and all of us also are in leadership, whether it's a Bible talk, uh, a household, roommates, uh, uh, a family, your children at work. All of us are leaders in one capacity or another. And so we also have to remember that as a leader, if you mess up, how do you want to be treated? Well, you hope that somebody will talk to you with respect and gratitude and point out what you've messed up in to give you a chance to learn and to change, to repent. You hope that they're not going to show up with torches, pitchforks, and, you know, ready to throw you off a cliff that, that hopefully they'll give you a chance to repent, right? Or to see or to learn. God is like that. God is very gentle. He's very gracious. Um, but he does expect us to do what's right and leaders will be held in high accountability. So he says, do this so that work will be a joy, not a burden for that would be no benefit. He says, pray for us. 
We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Okay, so a little bit of mystery here. Where was he or she? And what what was the, where were they trying to get to? We have a few clues here as now it wraps up. It basically wraps up with some personal comments. He says, verse 20, Now may the God of peace who through the blood of eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be for glory forever and ever. Amen. A little prayer there. May this happen. May we be equipped. May we, may we be able to help each other. He says, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. There's the title of the book right there. There's the title of Hebrews, the word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I love that because whew, it took us, what, about 14 weeks, 15 weeks to get through that, that brief writing. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. Whoo, big clue here. He was the writer is part of Paul's entourage. Timothy was in there. <clears throat> if he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. And I love this because this letter is clearly written to the members, not the leaders. It's not a letter, letter written to the leaders of a church. It's a letter written to the members of the church. And it says, greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. And I, I pointed this out at the very beginning in our introduction. There's another clue. Those from Italy send their greetings. So does that mean that this person and this letter is being written in Italy and they say hello to <clears throat> wherever the letter is being sent? Or does that mean they're, they're, you know, their little entourage is traveling the world and, and some of them are from Italy and the letter is being sent to Rome? And they're saying those, you know, your, your, your paisanos are saying hello, you know, and sending their greetings. And, and the last thing he says, love it. Grace be with you all. The only way we're ever going to make it to heaven is by a lot of grace. We can never forget that. Even our most righteous deeds are dirty rags before God. The best of us doesn't cut it and is not saved by righteousness. We are saved by faith. We are saved because God is a God of grace, and his grace saves all of us. Because we love God, because we love Jesus, we try to do our best and be our best. But none of us will ever save ourselves. The great hall of fame, the hall of faith, all of them were saved by faith. All of them were saved by faith because God is a God of grace, not by their righteousness. In fact, if you look at that list carefully, there are murderers, there are adulterers, there's all kinds of sin in that list. And yet they are the heroes in the kingdom of God because they were saved by grace, by faith. So grace be with you all. Thank you for being with us through this awesome time of study in the book of Hebrews. And that's the conclusion. 
You've just listened to the Metro LA podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit metrolaregion.com 